Dog Talk and Kitties too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. I'm here every week with authors and experts who can enlarge our understanding of the ways that animals share our lives and impact our society. To hear other episodes of this show and other informative pet talk radio shows I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a privately owned pet food company that uses people food to make food for cats and dogs in their family's human food facility. All varieties of canned Waruva, the pouches of cats in the kitchen, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend brands, are made with the same care and specifications that are used to make food for people. Waruva's owners want to feed their own rescued kitties, for whom the company is named, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, with ingredients good enough for people to eat. I have some dandy guests today from so many different angles of the dog and pet world. The renowned Dr. Bernie Siegel is going to be here with a new book, Love Animals and Miracles, full of heartwarming and inspiring tales. Jill Ben-Joseph will be joining us talking about an Akita who attacked her dog and has attacked six other dogs in her building, and there seems to be no recourse. And we'll talk about how you can protect your own dog from, I guess, a random uh, killer dog. And Allison Levine will be here, a, a very renowned speaker on the edge, leadership lessons from Mount Everest and other extreme environments and how she trains with her dog, Trooper. Bernie Siegel, welcome to the show. You have come back with a roar from Love, Medicine, and Miracles that I think everybody in America at one point read, right, and mm. took comfort from. Is that true? Do you think it was everyone in America? Well, it was millions of people. And it, it, had, it had to be a great feeling to be that guy, yes, the guy that it, brings it, happiness. Some, I came across a story in an article I wrote. I mean, it was many years ago, and I was going through papers at home, and I read it and said to the family, this is a wonderful article. And then I noticed, oh, I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's about the baseline is doing something real at last. And it's by a doctor who saves a newborn baby and goes outside, looks up, and says, I've done something real at last. Oh, man. And that was a feeling absolutely I had with that first book, when it was number one on the New York Times bestseller list, I can remember walking out of the house to go get the mail. And as I walked down the driveway, just having that feeling, I've done something real. I've helped millions of people. Yeah, but and, Bernie, you're also a, were a pediatric surgeon, right? I mean, right. you were doing something insanely real, life-saving yeah. all the time. I mean, yeah. Real to it, look up to the sky and go, how did I get to be yeah. number one of the bestsellers is just telling some uplifting tales. Well, it's true. I was just reading in my book, 365 Prescriptions for the Soul, you know, and there are individual stories about patients. Yes, yes. Things that you forget. They're, they're decades yes. ago. But, oh, it just warms my heart, you know, to help people like that. I mean, if I may, because, you know, one of the things you notice with dogs uh, one of our dogs was attacked multiple times. I mean, I adopted him, and even after that, our neighbors had two totally untrained dogs, 
and an electric fence. Well, we live in the woods. Our dogs were walking right. and obviously crossed the electric fence. And I heard this horrible sound. And out of the woods comes Furphy, missing an eye. It was just hanging out. Oh, Bernie. I mean, it was horrible. But, you know, as I said, he never stood in the mirror and said, I can't go out today. Do you see what I look like? Right, right. I mean, his tail was gone when I adopted him. Some dog bit it. Um, But he just, you know, was busy loving the world and not worrying about himself or how he looked or anything else. And I was with a patient. I went to visit her home. She had a head and neck cancer, and her head, her face was so swollen that her tongue protruded. She couldn't talk oh because my of God. all the swelling. And I walked into the room, and, and I noticed what I wrote in, my, in the book was, I thought, how am I going to get out of here? I mean, the sight, yes, the smell. Yes, yes. You know, I don't want to offend her, but I've got to think of something. And she wrote me a note because she couldn't talk. And I read it, and I wrote her an answer and handed it back. And then she wrote a note, handed it to me, and it said, you can talk. You don't have to write notes. Oh, that's very funny. And I burst out laughing. And in that moment, she became beautiful. And two hours later, I got a phone call saying, where are you? You have another appointment. And, um, you know, instead of wanting to leave, I was with the most beautiful person on the planet. And that's the kind of thing I think the animals, you know, teach us. They they are there too, being that beautiful creation, and I always use the word complete uh, because we we're, we're not we're all here learning, uh, but you know, and they are complete and are our role models. They're just so wonderful. I'm you know you you clearly were born yourself with a with an upbeat gene, an optimism gene, a see the beauty in in anything in life gene. I mean that is clearly what drives your engine. Well, because in a previous life, I killed with a sword, and I'm here now to heal people with the no, sword. No, come on. Which sword? Are you serious? Do you yeah. really believe that? Oh, I know it. Come because on. You mean like you were a samurai warrior or something? I was on the phone with a friend, very busy at the time, and she said, why are you living this life over the telephone? And I went into a trance and saw myself with a sword. And I literally, the only way I can describe it is like I was watching a movie of myself. I, I, I when it was done, I was crying for hours. Oh my I, Lord. I killed, a, I, I'm not going to go into details, but I killed a young woman and her dog. Um, cause he was in her bedroom and I wanted to kill her in her sleep. Uh, I mean, I know this sounds very crazy, but uh, he made a sound, so I thought if I'll kill him. But, of course, killing him woke her up. So it was a horrible experience. But what I learned from it, and I mean this literally, and it's why I'm living this life, is if I'd only had faith in the person who said, I want you to kill the neighbor's daughter, I never would have had to do it. You know, think about Abraham, okay? Let's put it that way. Okay. I want you to sacrifice your son. Okay. Hey, wait a minute. You know, what are you doing? Why don't you argue with God? Why don't you say, take me, leave the kid alone? Right. See, so when I was told to kill her, I argued. Now, when you say when you were told to kill her, seriously and literally you had had this past life regressive. What was interesting is when I went to get therapy for it. Oh, good. I'm glad you did. James Hillman, I told him the story. I said, I'm a knight. My Lord says, go kill the neighbor's daughter. I said, why not kill him? He's your problem. No, I want you to kill her. What if I don't? I'll kill you. 
you know, and I told him, he said, Bernie, do you hear what you're saying? I said, what do you mean? He said, you keep saying my Lord. I said, yeah, it's the Lord of the castle. No, Bernie, it's your Lord. He said, go home and relive this. And what I learned was when I had faith in my Lord and said, okay, I'm going, he didn't want me to kill anybody. He said, okay, I know you have faith in me. Now bring them here and we'll resolve the problem. So for you, it was religious. In a sense, it was in a religious realization? It, yeah, it, it, yes, I'd call it spiritual, I, I mean, about faith, okay? You know, who was your Lord? I, I would ask that of anybody. You know, is it making money? Is it impressing people? Or is it giving love to the world? And that's the part in choosing life, that when you choose life, you enhance your life and the life of everybody else on the planet. And that's what I'm trying to do now. And, and that's clearly what you did in your original book and in this book, Love, Animals, and Miracles, mm. the subtitle of which is Inspiring True Stories, Celebrating the Healing Bond. And it is a series of tales and stories yeah. which people it must have been bringing to you in the position right. you have of the man who tells uplifting yeah. tales. These must be something you've been collecting for a long, long time, I imagine. Well, some are, yeah. And some <laughs> I just let people I've known for a long time say, hey, send me stories. Right. Um, and they just came boring in because, you know, some of the things I share, like talking about what animals teach us, um, we have had a house rabbit that uh, some neighbor had let it go accidentally. And we rescued two rabbits out of the woods. And one of them, Smudge, named after her darkness. And I wrote a little book about her and, and Snowflake, her companion, uh, um, because of, again, what they learned from their troubles and then becoming house rabbits. But one of the dogs, the dog I mentioned, Furphy, I thought he knew um, Smudge by now. It was like a week and a half they'd been together in the house. But I stepped out of the house and he grabbed her and injured her. And two things. One, whenever I would take care of her wounds, she would turn her head and lick my hand if I was hurting her. And what, how different animals are. None of them ever bite me, you know, if I'm taking care of them as a surgeon. Um, they turn, give you a lick, and you know, okay, I'm sorry, I'll stop for a minute. But two weeks later, I couldn't find her out in the yard when it was getting dark and I wanted to bring her in. And I noticed the dog, Furphy, was lying out there uh, on the ground. So I went over to pet him, and who's lying behind him, you know, like under him, uh, hiding from me so she didn't have to come in the rabbit smudge. And that, the forgiveness that she demonstrated to him and to me, to show me about forgiveness was amazing. And that's what they keep teaching us, all these wonderful lessons um, and the love. I was lying down on a massage table the other day, and my latest dog adoption is Rags. If you haven't read that poem, you must do it. Let me we, get back to it after it's finished. I'd love play. you to read it to us uh, if you uh, can. That'd be great. Okay. But anyway, I'm lying on the massage table. And, you know, you got a, um, a, um, a round circle to put your head in, you know, right. with padding. Um, and what do I feel? A wet, you know, on my face. Um, I thought, what the heck is that? Um, and then I open my eyes, and who's lying there, uh, you know, below me, licking me, is our dog, Rex. <laughs> and the man who was massaging me, a friend who had come over to do it as a gift for me, he, he said, 
Bernie, in all the years I've been doing this, I have never, you know, seen a dog do that. Hold on a minute. I don't know if you hear noise in the That's background. That's all right. It's part of real life. We don't stop, care. Stop, please. Bobby, go tell him to stop. <laughs> don't worry, Bernie. I'm sorry. That's okay. It's not a problem. We usually have dogs barking in the background right. at some point, so it's really not a problem. But let me <laughs> let me read the poem if you yes, have time please. for it. Yes, please. What page is it on? <clears throat> um, what do you mean? It's on the internet. Edmund Vance. Oh, book. I thought G-O-O-K-E. it was in your book. Oh you no, it's some... not in the book. It's why I named him Rags. Oh, I see. Yes, please. Read let me it. just. That'd I'll read cool. the first couple of paragraphs in the end to you. Wonderful. We called him Rags. He was just a cur, but twice on the Western line, that little old bunch of faithful fur had offered his life for mine. And all that he got was bones and, and bread or the leavings of soldier grub. But he'd give his heart for a pat on the head or a friendly tickle and rubs. And Rags got home with the reg- regiment and then in breaking away, well, whether they stole him or whether he went, I am not prepared to say. And then he talks about being mustering out and goes back to medical school, see? And they walk in, he walks into the classroom. They had an animal tacked and tied and slit like a full-dressed fish with his vitals pumping away inside as pleasant as one might wish. I stopped to look like the rest, of course, and the B-size leveled mine. His short tail thumped with a feeble force and he uttered a tender whine. It was Rags. Oh, God. Yes, Rags was martyred there, was quartered and crucified. And he whined that whine, which is doggish prayer, and he licked my hand and died. Ay, 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 And the caramba. last paragraph, though, and if there's no heaven for love like that, for such four-legged fear, well, if I have any choice, I tell you flat, I'll take my chance in hell. Nice. See, only a dog would spend his breath in a kiss for his murderer's hand. That's another line. Whoa. But when I read that, of course, I was crying again because it touched home to me as a doctor, you know. And uh, so at the shelter, I get sent to the shelter by a higher force. I get messages, as my wife says, from God knows where. And you go down the shelter, I'll take him home. I mean it. Like the dog has shown up just that day. And some of those stories I share... um, I wrote a book, Buddy's Candle, about a dog and his child, you know, and the family that owns him both get cancer, and the dog is their teacher, and and, uh, he teaches them. And it helps people deal with that loss, too, of a loved one, and and how they're still with us kind of feeling. Right, in their spirit. Yeah, yeah. And after I wrote that, literally, a voice said to me, go to the animal shelter. I went down, walk in dog sitting next to the door. I said, what's his name? His name is Buddy. He's been here less than 15 minutes. I said, I'm here to take him home. Oh, my God. And that has happened so many times. Um, See, Rags didn't even have a name, so I could name him Rags, if you know what I mean. Sure, yeah. I went into the shelter. He gave me a look. I'm taking him home. (laughs) Well, Bernie, the beginning of the book, the early chapters are all about the home you had for your children, which had the Seagull Zoo, so many different creatures. You've been a lover of creatures forever. One of the things that struck me, and again, in speaking to you, is I wonder how much when you took care of children, there was some of that, from what I understand, from very sick children and children going through horrible, painful, theoretically frightening medical events, whether it's cancer or amputations or whatever it might be, that many times those around them 
are deeply struck by a kind of angelic quality to these children, a kind of a wisdom and a forbearance and a bravery and a don't worry, I can handle this. Was that, did you feel any similarity in looking after children and and animals? children never had trouble. I mean that. I know that sounds crazy. It doesn't mean they didn't have pain and disease and things, but they never had fear. They knew they had support. They had love and that they would get through it. That and humor, because I would act like a child with the children and also realize, you know, again, no different than with our pets. If they had faith in you, then they weren't worried because you, you could lie to children for their benefit. An example, you pick up an alcohol sponge. You say, look, we've got to draw your blood. I have to give you an injection, but you won't feel it because I'm going to numb your skin with this pad that numbs the skin. Guess what? At least one third of the kids are totally anesthetized by your words. I'll be darned. So I would tell the parents, you see, the same thing. Get a bottle of vitamins, put a new label on it. Oh, I'm hurting. Here's a pain pill. I'm feeling nauseous. Here's a pill for that. And here's hair growing pills. It's incredible because they have faith in us. I mean, it works with adults too. you know, but it's not as simple as with children who have faith in their parents and the doctor. And I, I learned, you know, I didn't know this to begin with, but I would say things to kids like, you go to sleep in the operating room, and they would fall asleep when I wheeled them in. And then I realized how powerful my words were. Right. So I used them for their benefit. Right. And the end of the book, back to Furphy again, uh, guys in my office says, what's it like to you know, cross over to make the transition to die. I said, I, I can't give you the specific information. And the man said, you're a spiritual person. I thought you'd be able to tell me. And then we heard scratching at the door. I opened the door and it's Furphy and he comes charging right in. And I said to the man, there's your answer. He said, what are you talking about? I said, look, I'm his master, but he has total faith in me. He's never been in this room before. And so when I opened the door, he saw me, he has faith in me, he just ran right in. And if you have faith, again, in your Lord, when that door opens, you'll be safe and you can just walk right in. And pretty pretty nice, Bernie. I think this is, just in wrapping up, I think that's sort of the overriding message in many of these stories is there's the a kind love. of the faith and the love and the trust and the openness between people and animals yeah. allows for some very special things to happen. Do you have time for one short, quick story? Very, very quick because we're, we're, okay, we're running because out of again, time. Again, about Furphy, a man came to our cancer group late. He doesn't know I bring the dogs. He came in and telling a tragic story and he hears snoring and he starts screaming at us for being totally insensitive, uncaring. His life is being threatened and we're falling asleep. And everybody pointed to Furphy under my <laughs> chair. And that was the best therapy the man ever had. He burst out laughing. All the fear was gone. He started a new life nice. because of a snoring nice. dog. <laughs> you never know where, where grace is going to come from. That's right. right. It, it could come from anywhere. Well, your book is marvelous. Love, Animals, and Miracles. It, too, belongs in a very high spot on anybody's list of books thanks. to enjoy and to share. Bernie, thanks so much for your time. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bless you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after this quick word with Jill Ben-Joseph and a story of a dog attack that I guess could happen to any of us. We'll be right back.
We are pleased to support the catnip allergy study. Are you allergic to cats? Does your cat or the cat of a friend or family member cause you to sneeze or get itchy, watery eyes? If so, you may be qualified to participate in catnip, a clinical study of an investigational drug combined with allergy shots. Researchers are screening cat allergic individuals at their study sites in Los Angeles, Denver, Chicago, Baltimore, Chapel Hill, Seattle, and Madison. If you are allergic to cats and interested in learning more about the catnip study, go to catallergystudy.org. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado who has created innovative litters for the health of all members of the family with low-dust litters that allow everyone to breathe easier. Precious Cat's newest health monitor litter has broken new ground by allowing people to find the early signs of kidney disease in their cats and intervene before damage is done, prolonging the quality and length of a pussy cat's life. I am back with Jill Ben-Joseph, who's become a friend of mine. She's a longtime listener and friend of this show. She also was the person who made all of those gorgeous dog talk baseball caps, those of you back in the day that would get them at the dog Bible pooch parties. And she made, she has a great company called Fan Fabrics, Fan Fab. She'll tell me the name of it again, on Long Island, privately owned. You don't have to go to China. You can go right to another Long Islander, and she made all the beautiful T-shirts for the Dog Film Festival, and she'll be making different ones for as it travels the country. But she's going to be here today, to, reluctantly, somewhat reluctantly, to yeah. talk about, the, <laughs> hi, Jill, this horrible <laughs> attack that happened to her beautiful little dog, Henri, and uh, named for Henri Bondel, or Henry Bendels, to some of us. And, Jill, the reason I wanted you to come here is because I think uh, many other people, especially with smaller dogs like he is, have had the truly horrific experience of taking your dog out somewhere and a dog attacks it. Sometimes we right. do this about pit bulls. This particular dog was a Nikita. And I'd just like you to talk a little bit about the fact that this dog was a repeat offender and yet was continuing to live in an apartment building and in society. And there wasn't, there isn't, or wasn't much anyone could do. So tell the story because I do think that we all need to tell each other these stories. So we know maybe how to anticipate it, what to do afterwards. And, and maybe there's going to be a, a, a satisfying ending and maybe not. So, so tell the story. Correct. So, um, yes, since you so lovely did my plug for me, yeah, the company is fanfab.com. You are correct about that. Um, and what happened was we moved from Long Island, where FanFab is located, to Queens <clears throat> about a year and a half ago, you know, and to, to enjoy the diversity, to enjoy the proximity to to the city. Moved into an apartment building from a private home, have a fabulous view of a dog park. And you know me, you know what a dog lover I am. Yes. I watch the dogs out there playing. We probably have 50 to 100 dogs, I would say, in this building. Wow. It's amazing. And of every type, size, variety you can imagine. And yeah, a couple of the males can get snippy with each other, but by and large, everybody gets along famously. Except for this one 150-pound Akita. And as you may have mentioned, I have two small Havanese, okay? And we were warned shortly after we moved in by other residents that this Akita was vicious and that it has attacked several dogs. I'm like, and so why is this still allowed? Right. And um, I guess, you know, I never quite got a clear answer to that. And we all spend a lot of time every day, every minute, looking around then, looking for this dog, making sure, and if we see it on the street, we cross to the other side of the street. 
And unfortunately, inside an apartment building, there's elevators, there's staircases, there's twists and turns, and you never know where you're going to run into him. Well, unfortunately, my luck ran out uh, last Thursday. We were coming in the side door of the building, and the elevator door apparently was not, it's at a 90-degree angle and was not closed yet, and the Akita was at the very front of the elevator. And my little uh, male cavities ran a little bit ahead of me and stuck his head to the elevator and just got yanked right in. And I don't even remember the details of what happened next, except there was blood and a lot of screaming, and out came Henry. And I snatched him up, and I grabbed him, and I ran him to an emergency room. You know, um, and then once the smoke cleared and I spoke to the building management, they told me that they had not a single record of any attack ever happening. They'd heard about it, but nothing in writing. So, you know me, as I said, we've known each other a long time. I went around and I talked to people, and sure enough, she paid everybody off. Oh, my goodness. Uh, that part I didn't bills. know. Yeah, and, paid and... all their medical bills. I even have somebody gave me a copy of a building incidents report that was filled out, but she only was willing to pay 50% of their medical expenses, which were much more than mine even. Um, dog needed surgery and everything. Oh, my God. And when, she, when they agreed to retract the report, she paid the full thing. Wow. Okay, so there's a lot of issues here, a lot of issues. And, and, and you're still living in jeopardy, as are the other. Uh, certainly all the small dogs are in jeopardy, but I, I need to say a few things about Akitas from my perspective as well. The, the, there's One of the big issues that jumps out at me is the sense that we're all in a community. And if someone right. knows there's a pedophile, you kind of tell and if the priest, and if the priest doesn't listen, you tell the school teacher, and if they don't listen, and so forth and so on. It isn't just about your dog. It's about the, the greater community. Okay. So I understand that people didn't want to face this horrendous bill that their dog had inflicted these, the woman's dog had inflicted these horrible wounds. But how extraordinary in this day and age of people being outed for all kinds of bad behavior, whether it's preying on teenage girls on the internet or whatever it might be, that somebody would turn a blind eye to save their own neck, even though their dog's already been grievously harmed, knowing full well that, it, that, that every other animal in the neighborhood is still in jeopardy. My experience. I, so, so I just, I just wanted. To, yeah, I just wanted to say I don't think they turned a blind eye. I think it's a little bit harsh. What I can tell you is that, in you know, between cleaning him and and getting his prescriptions and fixing him up, I called a lot of government agencies. You know, and every place we called the police. The police were here that night, and they all said to me, "It's a dog on dog attack. Their yes. property. There's nothing we can do for you." Yes. It's not that they didn't try to. Okay, that's fair. That's very well said because, in fact, dogs legally are property. And if property hurts property, it might be as if your couch attacked your your uh, your easy chair. (laughs) I mean, it's just property in the eyes of the law. So that's that's a very uh, an interesting point and one that, you know, is one of those legal fine lines on the show. I've had a number of brilliant law professors who specialize in what is called dog law. And it mm-hmm. and it applies to so very many things. And this is a curious one. It, it might be interesting for me to reach out to a couple of them and have them on the show and say, so what do you do about this? I mean, this is you, you have, you know, beautiful grown son and daughter, but your two little dogs are your kids, too. And Absolutely. and so your children have been grievously attacked. I mean, I'm not going to put online with the podcast of this show the photograph of the size of the wound in Henri's head. But it was not just a graze. My experience no. with Kitas, which I think is worth mentioning, 
because breed racism runs deep. My my Rottweiler Yogi Bear, who I owned when I lived in East Hampton, was the single sweetest, dearest, kindest mm-hmm. to children and other animals, to anybody and everybody, dog I ever met in my life, including my Golden Retriever, including anything. And of course, there are places where Rottweilers are banned. You can't get house insurance if you have them. And pit mm-hmm. bulls, unfortunately, have been also tagged with that. My understanding about Akitas, which um, were the guard dogs of Japan and we had a wonderful author on the show a couple of years ago, uh, Dog Man, I believe, was the name of her book. And one Japanese man kept that breed alive because they were being mm-hmm. eaten during the war for meat and their their fur was being used to line the soldiers' coats. And they almost were extinct. But they are a very serious, ferocious attack dog. Uh, Those of you that own an Akita that's a sweetheart, write to me at radiopetlady at gmail.com. And I would pretty much say to you, that's interesting. But I have spoken to a few Akita breeders. And they always say cautiously they need to be put in the right kind of home and given the right kind of upbringing. And boundaries have to be set. I remember years ago in L.A. when I... I thought it was Catherine Hepburn. I would go to meetings as a screenwriter, still wearing my riding clothes. I don't know what I was thinking. And my golden retriever, when you're young and, and, and you know, cocky, you guess you can get away with anything. And I would bring my golden retriever, Roma, into some meetings with me if I kind of knew the producer or the executive. And I remember showing up at the door of a freestanding producer's building on the 20th Century Fox lot. And there I was, smiling from ear to ear. I said, okay, if Roma comes to, Roma never even needed a leash. He, like, slammed the door in my face. God, no. God, no. I've got one of my two Akitas in here. Get your dog back in the car. Whoa. Is it safe for me to come in? No problem. Akitas have a lot of prey drive against other animals. And, in fact, when this dog was walked in West L.A. or somewhere, the owner had to cross the street when other dogs were around and could barely control and restrain the dog. You told me off the air that you had a, a knowledge and a growing up of a neighbor with many Akitas who were sweethearts, right? Yes. At least eight. She had at least eight and none of them ever, never a problem. By the way, in my research, and I'm not a lawyer, but in my research, Akitas are listed as one of the nine dog breeds that have attacked the most number of people. Not even dogs, but Whoa. the number of people. Whoa. And, and I also know, I can tell you, that the New York dog bite law pretty much hasn't changed ever since it was originally created um, back in the 20th century. You know, New York needs to get up to date with it. You know, New Hampshire has a, a very clear law about dogs that inflict injuries to other dogs. New York does not. It's very difficult to get in New York any kind of, of legal action when a dog harms another dog. Really? And yep. yet in other states, there are laws already. So this is something where there's a precedent that might be followed if one was lucky. Yeah, that's, that is my hope. That's what my research is finding out. Well, I mean, then the question comes, okay, so you've gone to the building and the building that had no record of any other attacks because they had been suppressed financially by the owner of the dog who blithely right. continues forward with a dog that with the, with a, uh, an elevator door nearly closing will grab the head of a small dog and drag it in as if it's some kind of a wild beast in a cave or something. Right. So right. what what is the next step? And, and, you know, a lot of people listening to this show live in buildings in New York. Now, most buildings right. in New York are super strict about dogs that are allowed in and what their behavior is. And I guess co-ops or condos are worse than others. The dog has to have an interview and you have to have a trainer that, uh, you know, that attests that the dog's good. 
But of course, anybody could acquire a dog at any time that would fall outside those parameters. So, you know, how does one protect oneself and what is the next step in, in your case, which would apply to other people too, I suppose? What is the building doing? Well, the building has thus far been tremendously supportive. I have to say, I went down That's there right. and as I said, they, they said to me, get me letters, get me evidence of people who've been attacked in the past and we've got a foundation. I've gone around, I've formed a petition with the building's knowledge and I've gotten other dog owners to sign and I probably have about 30 signatures so far and more to come. Other people have copies of the petition that they're distributing. Um, and yes, just yesterday, because this is live, this is, you know, real time right, information. Right, right. Um, the, um, the building management sent her a certified letter saying, if your dog is seen again outside, you must muzzle your dog when outside of your apartment. If the dog is seen without a muzzle, um, you, you will face legal action for eviction. Wow. But they're very serious. They're very serious about this. And has anybody, does anyone have any kind of contact with this woman to know what her response to this is? I mean, why was the dog not being muzzled anyway? I mean, how could you, if, if you had this dog and you had a, some sort of a relationship with the dog that even in its deranged condition, which you clearly, you as the owner, are part of that problem, maybe the whole problem, mm -hmm. I don't know. Exactly. Would you not, to protect other people, if not yourself, put a muzzle on? I mean, the Italians uh, in cities that, and they're mostly male dogs and they're almost always large, they, I don't know if it's a law that they're muzzled, but they certainly are muzzled. And you can mm -hmm. go online and you look up Italian basket muzzle. Strangely enough, yeah. it's always called an Italian basket muzzle. And it's made of a very pliable kind of a rubbery plastic and the dog can breathe with it. It can even drink with it, but it cannot mm -hmm. attack small other dogs. So right. what has anyone ever found out why she chooses to go around with basically a loaded gun with the safety off and pointing it at people? I'm afraid to answer your question, but I'll, I'll tell you what she has said, which is if she puts a muzzle on the dog, she will be unable to defend herself. Oh, I see. So to her, this is a loaded weapon with the safety off. She views this dog as her protection against what is her biggest fear in life? Small, fluffy dogs? No, I, yeah, I think she is not to protect her. It's the dog to protect itself. But who's going to mess with a 150-pound Nikita? Nobody. And clearly, he's taken, he's, he's a first strike kind of guy. Now, my suggestion to you, and I wondered what more you've learned about it in the 24 hours since you first told me about this and I asked you to join us today, is what about pepper spray? Uh, I know that a lot of postal workers carry pepper spray. They carry dog biscuits to make dogs like them. Right. And also pepper spray because postal workers get horrible bites from dogs who have issues mm -hmm. with postal workers. And I know that they carry pepper spray and that it's pretty effective. Um, what is your feeling about that or, or your knowledge about whether that's the right thing to do? Should everyone in the building I, yeah. be issued pepper honestly, spray? Yeah, I haven't had a chance to really pursue it. I, I, I tell you quite honestly, when you've got two dogs in your hands and, yes. you know, it, it's kind of hard to pull out the pepper spray as well, but but I will definitely go and follow your, heed your advice and, and get some. I, I mean, absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I, I would say that, that if not that everybody myself. should be walking around with their pepper spray with the safety off when they go into Central right. Park or when they go into the East Hampton Dog Park. However, if there's a known perpetrator and there's only right. so much you can do to look around the corner and, you know, sound the siren as you're about to enter a, a public space, having that out and at the ready 
it's a horrible way to live. I mean, it's like saying, I'm going to be mugged. I'm going to be mugged. I'm going to be mugged. Okay, here comes that mugger. At least I'm ready. But but in the end, it will save your dogs from another. Of course, the problem with pepper spray, which is why I don't believe in it myself, is that if you do it wrong, you could spray your own dogs or, you know, you're you're anxious and your adrenaline's (laughs) up. You have the wrong way. You spray yourself accidentally or something. But I do think that it's that it, it, it could be a valuable tool and and something I have to say I would recommend to people. It's legal Mm -hmm. to have pepper spray, you know, for women uh, to have against muggings or what have you. Uh, I I think it isn't a bad idea to have it. And maybe if the owner of a perpetrator, if it's a known perpetrator, and I would call the woman a perpetrator too, if she Mm -hmm. knows that pepper spray is is part of the artillery that is going to be mounted as a defense, she might be more cautious herself, not wanting her dog to get a face full of pepper spray. Correct. Correct. Tricia, I want to bring up one more important point here um, for your listeners, which is dog bites happen, unfortunately. And sometimes it could be just all scrabble between two small dogs. But one of the things I've learned in this process, and I wasn't, my dog, unfortunately, sustained, as you saw, a pretty nasty bite. Oh, yeah. But, but what I didn't know is that all dog bites, A, need to be reported and need to be treated because in a dog's mouth is filled with bacteria. And if a tooth goes into another dog, you can guarantee that, that you've got a very strong chance of an infection there. That's a very good point, Jill. It isn't something where at home you just put some hydrogen peroxide on. No, no. Because many of us might think, well, how bad is it? It doesn't look that bad. I'll pour hydrogen peroxide on it. Maybe I'll be clever and clip the hair away. You're right. It needs to be seen yeah. by a doctor. Lots. In we fact, emergency uh, yeah, I'm so and, grateful we did. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you did, too. And so is everyone else who lives in your neighborhood. And, and I'm remembering back a year ago, I want to say, a year and change ago, when I went to a doggy a doggy sleepaway camp where people went with their dogs. And I had just, just adopted my nine-month-old Maisie, sweetest girl on the planet, and a very large uh, Australian cattle dog owned by one of the people that was like a volunteer staff fully mm-hmm. attacked her, 100% attacked her, hard oh night screaming. And, you know, the most important thing was I knew that dog should never have been there, should never have been loose, had no business being in a place if there was any history of this having happened. And the woman claimed there right. wasn't. I don't know. I'll, I'll just say in closing that, that there are veterinarians and even dog trainers, Allison Denley, the uh, Allison's dog training, who's the official trainer of the show, often comes on with advice, where she wants all the information about a dog before she starts to work with it. And mm-hmm. the people will often say, no, no, fine, no problem. And the two times she's been bitten, both times the people said, God, he hasn't done that in a long time. <laughs> so yeah. just a word to the wise. If your dog has ever bitten somebody, it will happen again. And That's right. you're not going to be fast enough, whether it's another dog or another human, to intercede. So a muzzle is the way to go. I have to say, I do own an Italian basket muzzle from my days with Scooby-Doo, who had impulse control issues and who knew what would set them off. So those of you that have a dog that might have ever bitten, you really should never leave your house without an Italian basket muzzle on for your sake as well as the, of others. Jill, I, I hope you'll give us updates and that we'll have at least some kind of a peaceful ending to this so that people are safer and everyone does try to, to protect the, the bigger community as best they can against the Absolutely. one bad perpetrator. Then you find a, a building with 50 dogs in it or 100 where suddenly dogs are banned. It's just not worth the hassle 
to the building owners. Right. And we never want that to happen. Jill, best of luck. A big kiss to Thank Omri. You. And thanks for thanks for sharing the story. I know you were reluctant because it doesn't have a conclusion yet, but sometimes we just have to see how things unfold. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time, Tracy. Take care. Take care. I'll be right back after this quick word with Allison Levine, this extraordinary explorer, mountaineer, and her dog, Trooper. We'll be right back. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Halo Holistic Natural Dog and Cat Foods, which are made from real ingredients you can recognize. Halo uses real meat in their kibble, no rendered byproducts, chicken meal, or chemicals. And their new grain-free recipes like Vigor give you even more healthy choices for your pet's dinner, while Daily Greens bring vitamins and digestive enzymes into your dog's diet. Halo is a private company partly owned by Ellen DeGeneres, where they emphasize giving back by making donations to shelters through freekibble.com for pets awaiting their forever home. I am back with Allison Levine, who I have to tell you, after reading her book and reading about her, I thought she is like the coolest human on the earth. And why does she want to be on Dog Talk? She's done things way bigger than about her dog trooper. I'm just going to tell you, I mean, I don't know if I can even rattle off all of her accomplishments, but she's been to the top of every mountain, including Mount Everest with groups of women. And she's been, she's skied to the North Pole and she's skied to the South Pole. And only, I don't know, something like 10% of all the people that ever did that, did it her way, the full way. And she goes all over the world giving talks about leadership and goes to the Marines. I'm like, oh my God, she's so cool. But what has this got to do with dogs? And so... I read the the inscription in her book, and I thought, I see. So here's her book called On the Edge, Leadership Lessons from Mount Everest and Other Extreme Environments. And honestly, it is armchair reading of how tough and strong and cool a woman can be. But here's the dedication. I would like to dedicate this book to the most amazing, intelligent, handsome, charming, exceptional, loving, wonderful, talented, brilliant, compassionate, entertaining, inspiring, incredible living being on the planet, Trooper. You're the best companion a gal could ever want. And to Pat, my soulmate, who is all of that and more, I love you. Allison, welcome to the show. Trooper is obviously as cool a dog, an amazing, accomplished dog as you are a person. I mean, tell a little about Trooper. I mean, you've done these things I can't believe. I mean, do people just kind of live in awe of you, the American Women's Everest Expedition leader? And and I don't know, the idea of just going halfway up Mount Everest is beyond me. And you went all the way up and all the way down and all the way across. And you must be someone that a lot of people look up to. Well, I mean, I don't know about that. I try to, you know, um, go out there and try new things that are really going to push my limits, both physically and psychologically. So um, as you mentioned, I've, I've completed something called the Adventure Grand Slam, which is climbing the seven summits, the highest peak on all seven continents, and oh then skiing to both the North and the South Pole. <laughs> I think there's a couple dozen people in the world now who've completed this. And so I wrote my book, On the Edge, because I wanted to share all these lessons, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, what went right, what went wrong, you know, when was I, ex- you know, ecstatic to be on the top of a mountain? When did I just want to break down into tears? And so that's really why I wrote the book. And I dedicated it to Trooper, my big black lab, 105 pounds, because he sat at my feet. And, you know, the whole time I was writing the book, which I felt like was, you know, harder than climbing any mountain. Well, not I just exactly. Felt like, you know, he was with me all the time when I was writing, when I just needed to get the hell out of my office and 
go hiking or something, he would come with me and just always ready to, you know, up for anything to do whatever I wanted to do. And I felt like, you know, he was with me through thick and thin. And I don't think I would have been able to write the book if it weren't for him. But also you do a lot of training with him. I mean, you have to be in a physical condition that's mind boggling. I would think more than an Ironman or an anything or a triathlon. I mean, yeah. the things you've done. I, I mean, my first question and I know I have friends in uh, in East Hampton, one in particular uh, named Diane, who when I was thinking of going to India, mind you, as a very high class tourist, she said, why don't you have the Discovery Channel? So <laughs> you say to me, oh, yeah, I had to go to this peak and that peak because I like to push myself. And I really have to say, why? What is up with this? I mean, really, it's it's amazing. And I want to talk about Trooper and I want to talk about the, the lessons that you have in the book, like it isn't just, oh, so that's how you go up that side of Mount Everest. It's really cool leadership lessons, life lessons that you've come back with and kind of uh, reduce the, down the physical hardship and challenge into something that the rest of us that are just armchair travelers can can take away from. But what is with you and these other women? And if there's a few men who've done this too. Why? Why do you do it? Can you explain it to the rest of we mere mortals? Well, from the time I was younger, I was always very intrigued by the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers and the early mountaineers, and I would read books and watch documentary films, and long story made short, but I was born with a hole in my heart that got bigger as I got older, and I had my second heart surgery when I turned 30, and about a year later, the light bulb in my head just kind of went on, and I thought, okay, if I want to know what it's like to be... Reinhold Messner and drag a 150-pound sled across 600 miles of Antarctic ice, then I should go out and do it. If I want to know what it's like to be, you know, Sir Edmund Hillary climbing this big oh mountain, I should go God. do it. And if these other guys can go do these things, then what's stopping me now that I have good health? I mean, if other yes, people can go do it, then Allison. why can't I? Yeah, I think that same thing to myself. Not at all. Not even close. <laughs> it's like, so I guess you don't have a television. You, you don't have a Discovery Channel. No, I'm only kidding, but it's really not funny. Did And you did not use sled dogs. I've had another wonderful Arctic explorer on the show called John Houston. You might know about him. He wrote a book called Forward, his preparation for one of his trips. And I'll say the wrong part of the Arctic because I'm an idiot. But it's some part of the Arctic. He was at one point following the the mystery of the Arctic Cairn, which is a book, a, a movie, um, and it's going to be in the Dog Film Festival next year. And he did have four Inuit sled dogs to help pull those sleds. But you did this without sleds when you did your polar crossings. Yeah. Why, why no dogs? Well, first of all, there are no dogs allowed in Antarctica anymore because oh. of the environmental concerns. So you can't have dogs there. So you're just hauling your own stuff 600 miles with, you know, a sled that's harnessed to your waist. So you drag it there. And then North Pole, it's just too, where we were, too dangerous. There's too much open water. Um, and there would be no way to really get the dogs across safely. Oh, my God. But the people, the heck with them. The people, how do they get across <laughs> safely? Well, we're on skis so we can make it across. How do you go? I mean, the pictures of you going across these ice flows, it's like, isn't this the thing that sank the Titanic? I don't know. They're just, it's just mind, mind numbing how high and steep and scary and crevassy. And that to you was like, oh, excellent. 
right? I mean, well, no, you know, the funny thing is people will often ask me how, you know, how is it that you aren't scared when you're doing this stuff? And I always respond and say, are you kidding? I am scared out of my mind. And I've just learned how to use fear to my advantage. So we always think that being scared is a bad thing, but I use fear to keep me awake, alert on my toes, aware of everything going on around me. And Fear can actually be a really useful tool that can help you as long as it doesn't paralyze you. So fear only becomes dangerous when it paralyzes you. Otherwise, I think fear is actually helpful. So you think that many of the talks that you give, which are inspirational and about leadership in general, and you did some some time in a military setting, which would be interesting to hear about, and, and several of the, the blurbs, if you will, on the book are from like brigadier generals and people that are like a pretty high yeah. level of leadership in really scary, horrible conditions, not necessarily very cold, maybe very hot, depending on the battlefield. Um, but is are these is this idea of fear and being something that you can embrace something that can even be dumbed down, if you will, to the workplace? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, one of the big reasons I wanted to write the book, too, is because the lessons that I've learned in the various extreme environments that I've been in are very applicable to today's business world just because the pace that everything moves these days, everything, I feel like it's just a breakneck pace. Yes. There's constant change and there's, you know, environments are shifting and changing and you're dealing so much with the unpredictable. And that's so similar to these polar environments or these big mountains where you're trying to achieve a goal and you're in this environment that is shifting and changing that presents a lot of risk. And you can't really rely on your plan because whatever plan you came up with last year, last month, last week, or even that morning, you know, your plan is outdated as soon as it's finished when you're in environments that are constantly shifting and changing. And that's kind of how the business world is in the business world. These days, you have to be able to take action based on what's going on at the time, based on the situation, not based on some plan. So the book is also very much about, you know, how to think on your feet and adjust and change and go in a completely different direction than the direction you thought you were going to go in. And you don't necessarily have the even the physical tools. You have to use ingenuity. You have to use creativity, imagination. While you're freezing, while a blizzard's coming in, while you're physically miserable, <laughs> right? And you're like, yes. oh, excellent. I can rise to this occasion. Do you think that people, because you did, uh, describe a little about the the lecturing or the teaching you did for the military, because that's pretty interesting, because I guess there's a lot of guts and gore that go into being a soldier, and I'm sure that fear, especially in the beginning when one is first a soldier, the fear of how will I handle this, how will I react, not just the fear of death, but the fear of will I step up and be there in the moment, is that one of the things that you spoke to? Definitely. So I spent four years on the part-time faculty at West Point lecturing in the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership. And I lectured on the topic of how to lead teams in extreme environments. Because, of course, once these cadets graduate from West Point, they are second lieutenants and they're platoon leaders and people's lives are in their hands. So they have to be able to lead in these what they call an extremist environments, environments where lives are on the line and where success it's not measured in terms of revenue or profit share, you right. know, things like that. It's measured as to whether or not you come back alive, whether your, your team comes back healthy and in one piece. So, you know, there's a lot of similarities between the military and between these extreme environments that I'm in. So I spent four years there. And then now I currently still work at West Point in a group called the Thayer Leader Development Group, which is an executive education program. 
uh, that's run out of the Thayer Hotel at West Point that shares West Point leadership best practices with corporate executives. So really, I'm kind of so on the adult education side. So in the same way that you had ladders and uh, and I don't know these kind of bridges between one ice flow and another, you're sort of bridging. The, the the military world and the corporate world with these ideas and with this sort of inspirational avocational training that it goes exactly. that it goes across that divide and you've and you've sort of seen it from both sides do you think that and not really on the topic of dogs and we will talk about this beloved trooper <laughs> although with an acknowledgement like that it's like okay great you have the greatest dog in the world fine next i mean he must <laughs> be really incredible that, I love him so that, much. I, I love, you love him, him so and much. And then your partner gets, yeah, and she's great too. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is my partner, it's actually Pat. He, it's a he, he, oh, um, he, no, no, because we're not married, so I don't know what to call him. Like, when I say boyfriend, I mean, we've been together six years, so I just call him, you know, my partner, my long-term partner. But he, there's no, you know, his last name's not in the book. And there's no pictures of him because he's an FBI agent. Oh, and my Lord. He oh my runs God. the Joint Terrorism Task Force for the FBI, so I can't really say too much about him there's no oh, pictures so of funny. him and his last name's not in there so everyone laughs they're like oh trooper gets photos in the book trooper you know but there's no pictures of pat and that's just, well, because just of so his you job. know be trying to be politically correct the other person that you co-acknowledged was into the beautiful meg berte owen see you on the other side sister save me a seat right next to you so there's a picture of her and she's really a beautiful blonde like a yeah. surfer girl gorgeous and she was a very cool person who had uh, lymphoma, if, as I recall in the book, and, and recovered from it and then died of a stupid flu. But you oh, called her exactly. my girlfriend, Meg. So I'm like, okay, does she mean a friend girl? Like some guys will call somebody a friend girl. Like, okay, Pat could be a man or a woman. I got to be politically correct because maybe like she's gay, which is cool, but not really saying it. So I'm going to like. <laughs> yeah, it says my partner, Pat, which could go either way, especially if you yes. know the old SNL skits with. Yes. Pat, the androgynous person, and nobody knew whether it's male or female. And so just put my partner Pat, and, you know, I didn't, I so guess funny. I could have written Patrick or whatever, but he just goes by Pat. So nobody, could, you know, kind of knows how to really address it. Well, I just think it's great. Everyone should be with whoever is a soulmate. It makes them happy. Speaking of the FBI, I've been watching this fairly dopey TV show called Quantico, which I'm sure, I'm sure that not every single woman in the FBI Academy wears a very tight, very scoop neck t-shirt tank at all times. That's probably <laughs> unlikely, but it is really interesting about how things are taught in the FBI. And it, if in fact it's, they must have an advisor who sort of has them on the right track. There's a lot of team issues and a lot of death defying situations. How do we get out of this? Did you yourself at any point want to be in West Point or want to be a military leader or even in the FBI or, or was that like, oh, no, 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 that's not me. I can just give them my wisdom, but I got to get back on a mountain sometime soon. Funny you should ask. So first of all, coincidentally, my dad was an FBI agent. Ooh. So he and Pat have completely bonded. You know, they just love each other so much. But uh, I actually got the job at West Point because I was trying to enlist in the Army. This was back in oh. – uh, yeah, I always felt like I wanted to serve in the Army, like I should serve. And so when I turned 42, so I'm, I'm 49 now, but when I turned 42, I was trying to enlist. And I knew the age limit for the Army was 42. So I met with the recruiting officer, and the first thing he asked me was, okay, hang on, you know, how old are you? And I said, well, don't worry, I'm 42. I'm getting in right under the wire. <laughs> 
And he said, oh, you're too old. And I said, what? No, I'm 42. And he said, you have to enlist before your 42nd birthday. Oh, and I said, no. what are you kidding me? You're telling me I can't serve in the army. And he said, I'm sorry, you know, you're too old. And I said, is there any way around this age limit? Do you know somebody in the new Obama administration? Do you, you know, can you pull some strings for me? And he said, uh, sorry, I think this is pretty hard and fast rules. So I ended up contacting a guy. He was at the time, he was a colonel. Now he's, he retired from the army as a general, but uh, Colonel Tom Colditz, who was, running the head, he was the head of the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership at West Point, and I met him when I spoke at a, co a leadership conference at Duke, and he heard me speak, and he gave me his card, and so I contacted him, because I thought, wait, I know someone in the Army, and I emailed him, and I said, look, I'm trying to enlist in the Army, they're telling me I'm too old, can you pull some strings for me, do you know anyone, you know, do you have any friends that could help me out, and he responded and said, uh, Allison, I remember your lecture from Duke, I thought it was great. He said, if you want to do something to help the Army, come teach part-time in my department at West Point. Because he said, I think the cadets could really learn a lot from you. They hear so much about leadership from military leaders. He said, your lessons are very applicable to what they do, but it, they're presented in a very different type of context. He said, I think it would be really interesting from the cadets to learn from you. So that's how I ended up at West Point is because I was Isn't trying to join the something? Army. And how incredible was that, that that was your decision at that point? We only have another minute, but I just, we do, I, you're just too interesting to just like, oh, let's talk about fabulous Black Lab Trooper. I mean, yes, of course, I'm sure he's great. <laughs> but I just think you your accomplishments and the way in which you've lived your life and given back to other people so they can learn from it and the women that you took on these expeditions just as nutty as you are, I might add. Oh, yes, another another mountain to climb. Excellent. Ay, ay, ay. What about Trooper? Are you a great leader to him? I mean, what about are in your real life? Are you like a mush and, oh, Trooper can do whatever he wants? And oops, he just stole the leg of lamb. Oh, well. Or are you very leadery with him? Leader well, my, it's funny. He is so, he is a very well-behaved dog. You can imagine my husband was is a, coincidentally oh, right. a West Point grad within right. the Army. He was a tanker in the Army and an FBI guy. He's got this dog so disciplined. <laughs> I, I, it's incredible. But, I mean, if I could – people say if you weren't doing what you were doing, what would you be doing? I said I would live somewhere where I had – a ton of land where I could just have a gazillion dogs because really? they bring me so much happiness. Oh, that yeah. Is when we, so when I retire and when Pat retires from the bureau, we're moving somewhere where we can have at least five dogs. We want to foster dogs. I mean, oh, I just feel like I was born to be a dog. You know, I never had dogs growing up. Trooper's my first dog. Well, and I never understood the dog love thing until now. And I just feel like dogs can change your life. Well, that is such a great note to end on. Your book is tremendous, On the Edge, Leadership Lessons from Mount Everest and Other Extreme Environments. Allison Levine, beautiful work, an amazing life, and you probably have another 49 or 42 years ahead of you to do even more incredible things. <laughs> when you get that sanctuary, be sure to come back on the show so we all know where to send the dogs that we can't take care of, okay? Absolutely. Have a great day, and thanks for being with us. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank you all for listening. Quite an interesting show. What an eclectic bunch of people and subjects. As always, dog love and pet love and cat love brings us together with many other curious and wonderful humans. Have a great rest of a weekend. Kiss your kitties, hug your pooches, and I look forward to talking to you again soon.